Welcome to Notes from the Backpack, a PTA podcast. Get the inside scoop on how to help your child become successful in and out of school. As parents, we know that your child can sometimes forget to share the notes from their backpack. That's why we've launched this podcast just for you. Welcome back to Notes from the Backpack, a PTA podcast. I'm Helen Westmoreland, and I am missing my co-host Keisha today, but I am excited to dig into an important topic with a fantastic guest. So in the aftermath of the pandemic, many of us hoped for a quote-unquote new normal when it came to our child's school lives. But instead, in the majority of schools across America, we sort of returned to business as usual. Today, we're going to explore what it would look like to reimagine schools and what it would take to make these ideas come to life, which is why we are so excited to have with us today, Elan Samuha. Elan is the co-CEO of Transcend, an organization focused on supporting communities across the country to create and spread extraordinary, equitable learning environments. Before co-founding Transcend, Elan served as the chief schools officer at Rocket Ship Education, the highest performing network of low-income schools in California. He also spent several years as a senior VP at Teach for America, directing pre-service institutes and service development for teachers. Last but certainly not least, Elon is a proud husband and father to two children. Welcome to the show, Elon. So glad to be here. Thank you for joining us. We are thrilled to have you. We'd love to start out with you just telling us a little bit about yourself and what led you to co-found Transcend. Thanks. So as an educator, I've spent my whole career trying to make sure that as many kids as possible, and ultimately all kids, get the kind of education that they deserve. And when I was at Teach for America, where I had the privilege of seeing thousands of classrooms across the country, I saw very quickly that in every single room that I went into, the hardest working person was always the teacher. And Mm -hmm. it got me thinking about why is it that way? (laughs) How do we make sure that students are deeply engaged and working as hard as we know they can with purpose and with the love of learning. And as I started pulling that thread, I started realizing school wasn't really designed for that. Mm. And it led me to, as you mentioned, rocket ship education, where we were able to design a model in which the community was much more involved. Parents had much more of a role in it. We started using technology in ways that made teaching easier because there was more personalization, et cetera. What I came to realize is that even some of those steps that we took required a level of community-based design and an R&D mindset of trying new things that was the exception and not the rule. So Mm. when my co-founder, Jeff Wetzler, and I started Transcend, it was out of the recognition that if we are going to get to where we want all kids to be, we're going to need to do school fundamentally differently. And Mm. during that period, I also had you know, the first of my two kids. And as any parent knows, once you see how precious (laughs) and infinite your child is, and you start to see that school's kind of like the system that you plug them into, and maybe you get lucky with the right teacher, maybe you get lucky with the right school. Yeah, you send your babies off. like Right. So it just, you know, made it 10 times more visceral for me, Mm. the idea that school needs to change. So that's why we've started Transcend and why we work with communities to try to 
redesign how we do school. Oh, that's great. I am so glad you're there and thinking about that and doing this work. I can't wait to dive into it. I want to take like 20 steps back because when we say our education system needs transformation, there's something implied there. And I feel like a lot of it is around the purpose. So when you say meeting the mark, I'm curious from your perspective, like how do you define the purpose of education right now? And how do you feel like that's maybe shifted and how we're meeting that purpose or not meeting that purpose? I'm so glad, Helen, that we're starting there because that's often where we start, actually always where we start when we're working with a community. And I'll give you some of my answers and some of the answers that I've heard, but I think it's important to name that the answer to that question needs to come from students and families mm. and educators and community leaders and district leaders all working together to interrogate that question. What's interesting is that lots of themes come up that I think would resonate for so many parents and educators. The purpose of school on some level is to help ensure that a young person has the skills and mindsets and orientation and context that will set them up for success in life professionally, mm -hmm. personally, et cetera. And certainly speaking as a parent, I want my kid to learn how to do reading and math. Absolutely. But that's not enough. Yeah. <laughs> right? I want them to yeah. know how to collaborate. I want them to know empathy. I want them to understand parts of their history. I want them to understand themselves, their community. So when you create the space to answer that very good question that you raised here, it's almost a flood of mm. beautiful ideas about what education is. And it's so funny, too, because you can almost always trace back something that someone says that feels novel and new. And then you go back to education philosophers of over the last few hundred years, frankly, and they'll say the same thing. <laughs> like, it's been in a book somewhere, <laughs> right? It is. It's our big existential <laughs> question. How do we all walk in our purpose? Exactly, exactly. And so I would say that the reason why it's so important to start with that question is because this model, which I'm positing mm. here is outdated, it doesn't take that into consideration. That is not the purpose that folks had in mind when they designed what is what we now call the industrial model of school. What was the purpose that you think is being reflected in our current system predominantly? Yeah. Let's not forget that when the industrial model was created, it was an innovation. We were going from a world where very few people had access to any kind of formal education. So true, yeah. To one where in this country, we were trying to get more and more kids. And, you know, unfortunately, it wasn't all kids, but more and more kids into formal education. So that in and of itself was an innovation. And they were good backwards planners at the time, and they thought to themselves, okay, well, what are we preparing them for? So especially in urban centers, the answer was, well, some of them will go to universities and so on, but mostly we're preparing them for factory jobs. So mm -hmm. in quite a cohesive and aligned way, they started designing school to not just prepare you for the factory, but actually to mimic a factory where mm. it's like an assembly line, right? You get a little bit of math for 45 minutes, then you go to reading, you get that for 45 minutes, then you get to eat, then you go back and you do science, right? And things like how many hours you spend in each of those things. So the things that we now think of as seat mm -hmm. time and the Carnegie unit, yep. they were born out of this. Because mm -hmm. everything else that one might think a young person needs was presumed to be fulfilled by other 
parts of society, mm-hmm. family, temples or churches. And whether or not that was true is obviously in question, but that was the sort of idea. The intent. Mm-hmm. 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 That is such helpful context. And I'm intrigued by your response when I asked what's the purpose that from your mind and where you sit, there is no one purpose. There are many, many purposes depending on the community and the kids and the young people and the families and all of that and what they want. And you mentioned that this current model we're using was an innovation at the time. I'm curious what, given the many purposes you've heard from communities as you've been working with them, what are you seeing as some innovations now? Like, what are some of the things that excite you that are being tried? So many things. We are seeing schools do a number of things that change the core experience of school to be one that is, frankly, much more aligned to the 21st century Mm -hmm. and to both the quote-unquote hard and soft skills that students need to be happy and successful today and into the future. One frame that has been really handy for us, and I should say that one of the hallmarks of school like the factory is that school was designed for a set of outcomes. Mm. The experience of school was not really the thing that was trying to be maximized. Right. (laughs) Just like the success of factory is not the experience of the workers in it, it is the efficiency and the quality of the outputs. So a zoomed out level answer to your question is Mm. that we're seeing schools focus more and more on the experience of school, not instead of outcomes, but side by side with them in a way that enables outcomes today and tomorrow. So one handy way that we think about how the experience of school is changing is what we call the 10 leaps. We asked ourselves, well, what about the experience of school? What are the dimensions that are the mark of the industrial model. And how do those dimensions change as we go into more extraordinary 21st century learning for all? So Mm. we're seeing things like learning that is happening in a more rote way to more rigorous learning, where students Mm -hmm. are using more critical thinking, making deep meaning of what they're encountering. Some of that, by the way, is actually captured in some of the, you know, updated academic standards, but it's also an approach. It's an experience. So it requires more project-based learning, more inquiry-based learning, more, as Jal Mehta in Harvard calls, Mm -hmm. deeper learning. And what we see as a result of that is that students are much more engaged. Literally, the experience of learning is better. But also, not surprisingly, they learn the material better as well when it's done well. Mm -hmm. Right. Another example of a leap would be the experience of school in the past is one of passive compliance because you're getting your 45 minutes of each subject and your success is based on, are you just listening to the teacher facing forward? We're seeing lots of communities elevate active self-direction where young people are more drivers of their learning. An example in where I live in Chicago, there's a school called Intrinsic, where it's a 7th to 12th grade school. They have an entire day a week that's called Choice Day, where students themselves are, you know, figuring out what they need, sometimes with the help of an adult to ask the right questions, but they might choose to go get some extra academic help. 
They might choose to work on a project with a student. Over time, it would evolve to they can go take an internship because that's what they need to get a certification that they want. So that's a very concrete example of it. But even within more traditional environments, students having more voice and choice in their learning. I love that. And I like the way you described it as thinking more about the experience of school, not just the outcomes. I want to talk a little bit more about what you mentioned as you're working in communities talking about the purpose of education and what you've been hearing that surprises you a little bit. Tell our listeners a little bit more about some of the things you hear that you think are frequent misunderstandings about the work you do. Yeah. Yeah. So there's a real tension in education, but it's also a tension in any sector when you're trying to do innovation work, which is, they have a term for it called the innovator's dilemma, right? Mm. That has many different aspects to it. But, you know, I think in education, it looks like this. My kid only has one chance at fifth grade. I don't want you Mm. experimenting on him. Right. Yeah. So what if it doesn't work? Exactly. So like do the innovation somewhere else. I don't want any part of that. I went to school this way. It's going to work for my kid. So I would say that the misunderstanding is that one has to make a choice between what is current, known and safe versus something that might have a lot of rewards, but is very risky. Mm -hmm. That there's that binary choice because that is not what we find at all. And Mm. the way that we describe and pursue community-based design, you're able to do a few things at once. One is dream big, right? So there's nothing wrong with having a really big vision for something that happens over the course of three, five, 10 years, right? But the way you fall into that trap is if someone would say, okay, well, that's the vision, so we're doing it now. Like, let's run the play today. Mm -hmm. Nothing's been built yet. We haven't tested it. We don't even know if it works, but we're just going to do it. That would be reckless. But in some ways, not totally unfounded, because that has been how education changes often rolled out, right? That's right. Yeah. Exactly. (laughs) Exactly. Right. So it's not an unfounded fear, right? Yeah. I would say that there are ways of doing it where you can dream big and then say, Okay, given our conditions of what we know, what's the very first part of that we want to take on? With whom Mm -hmm. should we take it on? Where do we have the highest chance of both learning the most, but also of proving out the most? With the lowest amount of risk. So, for example, we've had folks who have had the crazy, crazy idea that they want to try. It's like, well, let's not actually try that for all of fifth grade. Why don't we try it with an after-school program? Why don't we try it with a summer Mm -hmm. school course? Why don't we try it just on a Saturday with six kids and see what happens, right? So there are lots of choices where you can pursue the high reward, but maybe high risk kind of ideas. And that there's lots of ideas that actually are proven that other communities Mm -hmm. are doing and the stuff is codified and you can use it. We have an entire website called the Models Exchange where there's stuff that at some point it was someone's dream, but today it's someone's reality. You can go to the schools and see the kids use it. So I would say that that is one big misunderstanding is that you have to make that choice. And then pacing. Exactly. Towards a vision. Because you know Mm -hmm. what? If it takes 10 years, that's okay. It taking never years is the problem, right? Which I think leads to the second misunderstanding, (laughs) which is that somehow the thing that we're doing now is actually all that safe and good. Mm -hmm. We have a student survey that we've now given to 100,000 kids. And I'll tell you, and this probably won't surprise parents, like most kids, basically the best you're going to hear about school is it's fine. Like that's the high watermark. 
Yeah. I challenge us as parents in our own communities, just go have 30-minute conversations with as many kids as you can and track for yourself. How many mm. are saying, school's extraordinary? I mean, I can't believe the weather was so terrible today that I had to miss three hours of school. How painful uh. that is for me. But in school, if a kid just says fine and basically complies and gets pretty good grades, everyone's happy. And it's like, that's a misunderstanding, right? That's like, we have too low of a bar of what's possible. Yeah. So thinking that what we have now is just like good enough and safe, I would consider a fundamental misunderstanding as well. I think that is so insightful. I think sometimes we hear in the news and the media a lot of these arguments, which are meaningful about like the NAEP scores, right? And our kids aren't performing. And that sure. is meaningful, but it's not the same as when you're a parent and you're trying to convince a kid to get dressed and out of bed and to school that doesn't want to go because they don't like it. They're mm -hmm. bored, like whatever. That hits. Like, That's right. That's right. <laughs> like, That's right. In a different way, I also want to know how do communities get started in this transformation work? What are you seeing as taking that pacing comment yeah. to heart? Like mm -hmm. some of those first few steps, entry points for a district to kind of rethink and reorganize how it's doing its work in the service of kids and families. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I'd be happy to share a resource with your listeners. We published a short paper, very accessible, <laughs> describing what we mean by community-based design with a bunch of resources that you can click into and use, with the caveat that it does look different in every community. It's usually some group of people that comes together, and importantly, a group that is representative of a few different stakeholder groups. Yeah. The best examples are when there's a couple of teachers with the school leader or a couple of school leaders if it's a larger district, someone at the district level, maybe even the soup often, and some students and families coming together and starting to, we have a bunch of tools to do this, interrogate these big questions like, what's the purpose of school? At the beginning, there's some amount of looking inward and looking outward that a community needs to do. The mm -hmm. looking inward to understand what is happening actually right now. Let's challenge the assumptions we might have. And we do that by literally going to classrooms observing, having 30 or 45 minute conversations mm -hmm. with young people. It's a big challenge to try to talk to a young person as an adult for 45 minutes where the adult only talks for three of the minutes. You got to have some good interview questions for that. Yeah. That's right. And we have that. That is something you can click on and get. We call them okay. student interviews. Or if you want to go even a step further, shadow a student for an entire day. So there's some of that looking at data, like who's succeeding by traditional outcomes, who's not? Why is that, right? And then some looking outward, right? What does learning science tell us? And we have some materials for that. What are some of the most innovative models around the country and increasingly the world? What can we learn from them? What is our community demanding of our students? So we work with, you know, a ton of rural communities, for example, where they're asking themselves not just, mm. you know, big macro questions about the future trends of work, but like in this community, who are the yeah. employers and what is it that they need and what would make them want to open a new office, right? So that is the beginning. And then from there, it's figuring out 
What's our vision for what school can be? And that's not something that communities need to do from scratch. There's a lot of great stuff. We have some of it, but there's also so many places we can point you to to get the inspiration to say, we think we want something like this. Mm. And the reason why it's good to have a coalition of people doing that is that it's that group that is starting to build the coalition and the conviction and the clarity that the community needs to start pursuing the change at whatever pace makes sense for them. Mm-hmm. Gosh, it seems on the one hand so straightforward, on the other hand, still daunting. It is. Right. I feel like it's almost even hard for me to step out of this, like, oh, it's so hard to change. Yeah. It's so like, will it really happen? Yes. Change. So I'm curious if you've encountered that sort of mm-hmm. skepticism, mm-hmm. I guess, or pessimism about it. And how you've advised folks you've worked with who really want to advocate for change to like help get past that skepticism and make a change. Oh yeah, and look, it's real. While I may sound optimistic, because I am, and it's my job to be. Yeah, yeah. Right. Like, <laughs> Thank you for being optimistic. Y- yes. yes, but I don't want to make it sound like it's easy because it's not, and it requires yeah a lot of work. Right. But the reason why I remain optimistic is that every community has a certain set of conditions, and we believe those conditions can grow over time. Mm-hmm. And usually those conditions grow over time when at least the community and some set of folks in that community are willing to go on a learning journey. Mm-hmm. It is through learning that the conditions get built where you start getting mm-hmm. the conviction because it's like, it's so true what you're saying that it's like, look, it's really hard. How's it going to happen? But after you talk to the sixth kid, that says, mm-hmm. I don't feel like I belong in school. Yeah. yeah. You start getting a little more conviction <laughs> to overcome yeah. some of that skepticism. Or guilt if you don't do anything with it. I mean, that's the thing. I mean, we've had school leaders say, like, I can't unsee what I've seen now. Yeah. Right? But I think the silver lining is that because there's not some prescription of, so once you know it, year one, everyone stop what you're doing and it's this Herculean task. Because at least our prescription is just move at the pace of your conditions. Wherever you are, there's something you can do. It doesn't have to be the whole thing, right? I'm thinking about a student who we had come on to one of our team calls from Northern Cass, North Dakota, who just absolutely did not like history, ninth grader. And on that survey that I talked about, she was definitely one of the people who said learning wasn't relevant. In fact, only I think 25 Mm -hmm. or 30% of the kids said learning was relevant. And when she had the chance to create her own history course. And by the way, this is a pilot with six kids. It was not high stakes, right? She loved history. I mean, Uh so much so that she'd get on a call with 100 adults and explain how writing a course about women in history that really spoke to her made her realize all these realizations that any parent and any teacher would want to hear. And when you start to see that, and you combine the, ooh, this doesn't feel good. The kids are saying learning is irrelevant. And actually, we tried something, and eight or 12 weeks later, we're starting to see a little bit of light. Mm-hmm. It's that momentum that overcomes the skepticism. Mm-hmm. Well, I could probably talk to you all day, Elon, but I'm curious. You mentioned optimism and sort of the student. When you look ahead to the next maybe 10, 20 years, are you optimistic And why or why not? It's such a hard question to answer because 
there are so many forces at work. I do believe that if we resist the temptation to just pick silver bullets and dump them on top of communities, Mm. which is what we've done for years Mm. and years, but rather give ourselves the time and space to have these kinds of conversations, the natural human inclination towards learning and innovation and progress will take hold. (laughs) And I believe that because I study history, but also because I see it in communities that we got a chance to work with. And so once you start seeing it, you start thinking it's more and more possible. So I am optimistic. I like that outlook. Yes. That's good. I'm grateful for your optimism. Before we go, any final words or advice you want to offer our listeners? As you can tell, I think it's possible. It looks different in every community, and we have lots and lots of tools that people can use and conversation starters. Tell us where folks can go to find out more about the work you're doing. So our website, transcendeducation.org, has everything. There's the models exchange. There's the leaps that I talked about, community-based design tools. Soon we will be coming out with a book that folks can read that will also link to all those kinds of tools. And our hope is that the collection of resources which we make open source by design will inspire folks to do things like invite some people around a kitchen table to start some of these discussions. Excellent. Well, I'm looking forward to checking those tools out. Thank you again for joining us, Elon. We appreciate your expertise and your optimism. It was a pleasure being here. Thanks for having me, Helen. Thank you. And to our audience listening, thank you for joining us. For more resources related to today's episode, check out notesfromthebackpack.com. Thanks for tuning in and please join us next time. Thank you for tuning in to Notes from the Backpack, a PTA podcast. Be sure to follow us on social media at National PTA and online at pta.org forward slash backpack notes.